Coming up next, the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-41. Before you say something, ask yourself, how can I say this or, you know, be kind to my partner? Those kinds of interactions diminish the amount of negative emotionality in the relationship. And if you're in the classic patterns, because ADHD actually is there and you're in that parent-child dynamic, it means probably that the non-ADHD partner is really angry. Shalom and hello there once again. This is Avi Ben Mordechai and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. On today's podcast, we're going to be chatting with international author and marriage consultant, Melissa Orlov, who deals extensively with marital relationships that are affected by ADHD. Melissa teaches couples, therapists, and counselors, coaching them about how ADHD impacts relationships, in addition to consulting privately with couples who wish to improve their ADHD-impacted relationships. Uh, Melissa also submits blogs to Psychology Today and regularly writes the Your Relationships column for Attitude magazine, Now, you might ask, why invite Melissa Orloff to a Hebraic roots, Messianic Jewish kind of show when her international expertise is more in dealing with ADHD-affected marriages? I would like to answer this question with a biblical studies principle, which is called in Hebrew, Kal Vehomer, light and heavy. It actually comes from passages such as Jeremiah 12, 5, which says, if you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? So permit me to apply this light and heavy principle to today's forthcoming chat with Melissa Orloff. Considering that marriage counselor Melissa Orloff is experienced and skilled in relationally taming the wild horses of ADHD-affected marital relationships, then I would say, how much more can she run with all of you wearied foot soldiers in non-ADHD-affected marital relationships? Well, even if you are in a relationship not affected by ADHD or ADD issues, Please don't go away thinking, ah, this isn't for me. No, no, no. Rather, consider her thoughts in the light of our many biblical principles that govern all relationships, married or not. And if perchance your marital connection is affected by any one of the number of mental, emotional, and or physically debilitating issues in one or both partners, as Melissa is going to describe many of the symptoms then I would encourage you to stay with us for the next hour because you're in for some excellent counseling from ADHD marriage specialist, Melissa Orlov. Melissa, thanks so much for joining us here on our Real Israel talk radio podcast today. Really appreciate you coming on board here. Thank you. Uh, Just a little bit of a brief on how my wife, Suzanne, and I came across you and your work. 
Uh, back in 2017, I was diagnosed with ADHD, uh, unknowingly living with it, really, since I was uh, just a wee little kid, and uh, often being overcome by its emotional challenges and really without any precise relational skills needed to get it under control. It has affected me all through my whole life. It's been a real challenge not even knowing what it was that was giving me the grief that I had, uh, particularly in relational issues and uh, impulsivities and things like that. People would often say to me, oh, that's just Avi. Over my many years, I've personally come to understand really the turmoil that ADHD does produce if it is left to itself, of which it has been left to itself, if I understand it correctly, Melissa, probably up until about the 90s is really when it's started to come into its own. Would you say that was probably correct? Well, yes, because um, that's when the people's really started. I mean, they've known about ADHD for much longer than that, but people really did not focus in on it and schools didn't start noticing it and et cetera until about the mid nineties. And then, then it was only thought to deal with kids, but there are a lot of people who believe that ADHD is only about hyperactive children, which is quite wrong, actually. Very interesting. And so uh, without the proper management and right relational tools to help put it together and help deal with it, you know, it just makes for difficult marriages, difficult relationships, difficult employment uh, on many different fronts, I would think, right? Yeah, it, it can be extremely debilitating and people don't realize it because they think that, well, it's about distraction or hyperactivity or whatever. And these are symptoms that they're very familiar with. They say, oh, everybody gets distracted every once in a while. It's okay. Um, but the difference between somebody who has ADHD and somebody who's just easily distracted is that someone who has ADHD is chronically distracted. So they very often are very distracted or having trouble pulling themselves together. Uh, and, and there are very successful people who have ADHD as well, but often there's at least one part of their life that they struggled with. I don't personally do diagnoses. So when I look out at the world, I go, huh, there are a lot of characteristics there, but I don't myself diagnose. So I tend not to make those judgments, but sure. I mean, there are people who've come out and said, I have ADHD. A guy who invented the uh, paperless ticket for airlines had ADHD because he kept leaving his ticket at home and he got really frustrated <laughs> about that. So he finally said, this is ridiculous. We got to figure out I don't need to have my ticket with me. You, you know anybody else in the business world that also uh, happened to have ADHD? I'm just curious. So another person who has ADHD, who's famous in the U.S. at least, is uh, Michael Phelps, the Olympic swimmer. And his teacher's and others, when he was younger, said, you know, you're never going to amount to anything because you can never keep yourself pulled together. And here mm. he is. He's, you know, a really famous guy. Wow. And wow. Plenty of people who have ADHD. Uh, which is why I would like to talk about your story, how you have come to deal with it. You're married to a man that has ADHD. Uh, could you tell us just a little bit about that story? The joke is that my husband and I were... Uh, completely and totally average in this. We struggled greatly. We had no idea what was going on. We had a daughter who was diagnosed with ADHD and we still didn't know what was going on. And I was working with uh, Dr. Ned Hallowell and Dr. John Grady. These are two of the more famous ADHD people in, uh, in the country. 
Uh, I wasn't doing therapy of any sort because that's not my background, but I was working with them. And so I was learning all about um, the latest about ADHD. And finally, I said to my daughter's doctor, is there a possibility that my husband has ADHD? And she said, well, yeah, of course, it's heritable. I said, well, why didn't anybody tell me? <laughs> of course, I'm okay. So it, it, then I started looking at what was going on in our relationship, which had been completely nonsensical up until that point. Like, you know, you ask your partner to do something and he says, sure, absolutely, I'll do that, no problem. And then he doesn't do it. And you can't figure out why that keeps happening. So I got very interested then in the topic as we started to work on our relationship. I mean, we were doing this in the mid 2000s. That was just when people had just started to think about adult ADHD and it had not expanded into what happens to relationships. So we struggled and we experimented and we had lots of failures, which is what happens when you experiment. But we also had some successes and we finally turned things around. And I looked at my husband at one point and said, you know, other people would be interested in this too. I'm sure we're not the only people that would struggle with this. So I started a blog and then everything took off. From there, I said, wow, this site's way too busy. There's way too many comments and pages. So I wrote a book. The book was reviewed by the New York Times in a big article in their well section. It took off. I was on TV. That took off. I mean, it was just, uh, it just sort of changed the course of my life and what I'm doing. So I really am on a mission to help couples. I train therapists and I give speeches all over the world. And so, it, but it started out with just a very personal disaster. We were very close to divorce and, uh, and turned it around. Would you say that some or many of the principles that you will address here with us here on this program that, uh, you know, they are also common to marriages in general, even without ADHD. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in fact, the part of what I do is I take the best of the larger marital research out there. And then I look at that research and I say, okay, so how does ADHD impact what this research says? And how does that line up with what I see with the couples that I work with and et cetera? And then I write about it and explore it and et cetera. I mean, I'll give you a very good example. John Gottman does a lot of very interesting and very solid marriage research time on what makes a healthy relationship. And as part of his research, he looked into what trust is all about. And uh, he came up with a, a trust equation based in his research that has two elements to it one of which is about transparency and the other is about ethics. But the transparency part of it essentially includes the idea that when your partner says they're going to do something, that they will follow through and do it. That's part of what makes them trustworthy. Hmm. But if you have ADHD, that completely changes that part of the trust equation. If you just go by that trust equation, you would say that nobody with ADHD could be trustworthy ever. And that's just not true. How do I want, when I'm teaching couples how to rebuild broken trust, how do I want to talk to them about it? And how should they be thinking about the fact that, yes, the partner with the ADHD will make promises and sometimes, even with the ADHD managed, will not be able to follow through on them. You know, how should they respond to that? You know, I teach things like that, where I take the research and then I adapt it specifically for ADHD. Okay. So essentially, the reason that I have asked you to come on to the program 
is because we're all dealing with something in marriage, whether there is ADHD in the marriage or not, but the ADHD, of course, makes it just more difficult to deal with. I mean, you already have difficulties as it is. So if you can deal with ADHD as you have demonstrated in your writings and your work, then certainly anyone listening to this program in a marriage relationship or any kind of a relationship, if they don't have ADHD, I'm saying you're probably going to have some answers for them too, just because you deal with the more intense of the intense kinds of things going on. I do. I deal with some very extreme situations for couples. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think what I would like to ask is when we're talking about the issue of trying to understand your partner or spouse, uh, you're dealing with issues of trust and transparency. And when trust gets broken in the sense of, oh, Honey, will you do this? Oh, you forgot for the 10 millionth time. These things affect relationships. And as a result, a marriage partner, a wife, husband can become a bit perturbed, can become uh, impatient, can uh, start not being kind. I call it snarky, which is uh, kind of the idea of uh, uh, the snappy and barky. And it's like, you know, you just don't want to be kind anymore. And uh, you're addressing the issue of learning to understand each person's way of being better. I have these two terms, neurotypical versus ADHD, but you don't even like to use the word neurotypical. No, the ADHD isn't always easy to deal with in today's world, but, um, but it does confer some benefits if it's under control. There's a lot of creative thinking and perseverance and other kinds of things that many people with ADHD have simply because they have ADHD and they have to be creative and they have to persevere and, you know, et cetera. And I know in my own relationship, my husband and I are extremely different. You know, with the ADD, he processes, literally physically processes information different. We see the same experience and we see it differently. We experience it differently based on who we are. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time to get enough humility to be a good partner because human nature is that you think that the world happens the way you perceive that it happens and that's just not the case and so different ways of being include being in the world around you differently experiencing those things differently so i've been married to this man over 30 years now and he can still surprise me i mean i can predict a lot because i know him quite well And then sometimes he'll say something, I'm like, wow, okay, so I would never have thought of it that way. (laughs) Um, But it's really important to not only recognize your assumptions about what your partner might be thinking uh, or experiencing, you should be starting from them telling you versus you assuming you know. And it makes a huge difference in the relationship. What you're saying is what it means to be a good and effective listener and speaker in order to minimize all of these relational misunderstandings in marriages and relationships and uh, you know how these uh, how learning these skills can actually build intimacy with any couple it's an interesting thing that i would like to ask you to comment on that if you could please okay so you have six hours (laughs) well so one of the things that is interesting in a lot of the self-help industry they talk about learn how to communicate better or whatever And when people think about communication, what they think about is somebody hearing what they want 
them to hear. Or they say something and, the, and people just take it the way they want to take it. And it's not that easy. The speaker has a responsibility to understand where their partner is coming from as well. So that you have a better feel for what's going to work or not going to work. I see this a lot. As an example, people with ADHD are pretty easily overwhelmed by lots of information or just stuff coming at them quickly or emotions. Sometimes they're very emotionally easily overwhelmed. And if you know that about your partner, then you can be more careful about how much information you give or how much you say to your partner or how you say it or what tone of voice you use. You don't want to sound like you're being critical as an example, because lots of people are very easily triggered by criticism. And so you have a responsibility as a speaker to communicate in a way that your partner hears. And if your partner says, you know, stop criticizing me as one example, and you're thinking to yourself, I was only trying to be helpful, which I hear that combination all the time. I just was trying to help my partner understand X. Then I say, okay, but pay attention to what your partner's telling you. Cause it doesn't matter how you intended it. It matters how your partner heard it. That's the important thing. Did you communicate in a way that your partner could hear? That knowledge, you go back and forth around that, does increase intimacy, I think, because you learn to trust. If you come back and you say, well, hey, this sounded like X to me, that your partner is going to respond to that. This is not actually easy, Melissa. I mean, you've been at it for many years, and for many of the listeners here around this program, maybe they're saying, wow, that describes me right to a T. I mean, so how are people supposed to just dive into this without even having any background and experience. I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and all of a sudden I'm going to be a, a great speaker, a great listener. I mean, it just doesn't well, quite happen. That no. Way. And one of the tricks is I tell people, believe what your partner tells you they're feeling, right? People have a tendency to say, oh no, that's not really what you're feeling. Or you know, your partner says, I don't think I can hear this right now. And you say, of course you can. I'm just, you know, and off you go. <laughs> In the relationship business, that's called validation, sort of uh, listening to what your partner's actually telling you. In conversations, people don't slow down and actually listen. They're actually thinking about their rebuttal while their partner is, you know, they're on like, no, no, that's not right. And off they, you know, and their head is doing someplace else. So I always say, if your partner's talking about their emotions, believe them and once you believe them, then respond to what they've said as if it's true, because it is true. Your partner is the expert in their own emotional hmm. life and their feelings, hmm. and they have a right to any feeling that they have, including anger or anything else. The issue isn't the feelings that they have. The issue is how they express those feelings. And I, and I would think that if we're doing these kinds of things, it's going to actually help, as you say, to build that kind of intimacy, I would think. yeah. I think of it as sort of a, a pyramid. And the bottom base of the pyramid is what they call self-intimacy, which is knowing your own emotions well enough so that you can A, identify them and therefore respond to them, and B, communicate them to somebody else like a partner, right? So that's sort of the base. And then the second level the above that, that's built on that base, is what's called conflict intimacy. And what you're sort of talking about is this conflict intimacy mm -hmm. where the goal is to be non-aggressive in how you speak and non-defensive in how you listen. So the implication of that type of listening is it's open, it's uh, accepting, it seeks to understand, 
And it seeks not to hurt when you're speaking. It seeks not to be aggressive. And then the next part of the top part of that pyramid is what's called affection intimacy, which is what people think of when they think of intimacy, which is verbal and nonverbal forms of affection and physical affection and et cetera. The fastest route actually to get to that pinnacle is to get that conflict intimacy in place, to have this open, I believe you, and very importantly, your point of view is equally valid to mine. Mm -hmm. So one of the big issues for the couples that I work with that I've nicknamed parent-child dynamics, where Mm -hmm. you have a partner who's sort of managing and in control. And that tends to be a partner who is what I call a non-ADD partner or a more organized partner. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then the less organized or ADHD partner is in a kind of a childlike role because they're underperforming. They're, you know, making promises and not following through and all of that. And that is a mismatch of status. You have one very important person and one sort of denigrated person in that. And so Conflict intimacy and good conversation skills, both people have equal status or Mm. believability Mm. in that relationship. Mm. Taking this then to another level, how would you counsel people then to basically to let go of anger and resentment in relationships, especially when they are being so browbeaten down by these debilitating things like ADHD or perhaps, hey, you know, even, uh, you know, bipolar, whatever. There's going to be a lot of resentment getting built up uh, and some anger. Uh, Well, I see a lot of chronic anger where the anger just colors everything. And a lot of the people that I see, it's because of that imbalance of status. So one of the very first things that I will work with couples on is making sure that each partner is what I call contributing their best self to the relationship. Okay. So again, for my people, that the people who have ADHD need to be managing their ADHD effectively, and the people who don't have ADHD need to not be in that parental role and nagging or reminding or trying to bully a partner into doing things or that kind of thing. I mean, one of the things about anger is that it is a negatively reinforcing cycle. You can think of it like a circle almost where it just goes, you know, reinforces Mm -hmm. itself and just keeps going and going and going. It's not the anger that's the problem. It's like a red flag, you know, like, oh, look at this. There's a problem. (laughs) You need to pay attention to this. You know, there's anger Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. But in, in and of itself, it's not bad. It's how you express it. So if you're in a cycle of venting, raging, uh, negative expression of anger, the best way to start with that is actually to step out of that cycle and to refuse to participate in it. And sometimes you do that by saying, I'm really sorry, but I need to leave the room. Both partners agree that they're too angry, so they might set up a verbal cue Mm. where when Mm. somebody starts to feel really angry, they, you know, essentially verbally raise their hand, hey, I'm starting to lose control here. We need to stop. One of the things that's kind of interesting about anger, there is a form of anger that's called flooding. And flooding actually is a physiological thing that happens where your brain becomes overwhelmed with emotion. And when it does, the blood flow of the brain from the front part of the brain, which is the sort of managerial executive Mm decision-making logical mm -hmm. part of the brain, Mm -hmm. and you move it backwards to the fight or flight part of the brain. And so when you get flooded, 
you literally don't have the blood flow in the logical thinking part of your brain to be coherently thoughtful. You just can't do it. Like, you know, this is when people are raging and they, and they know it. It's like people call it seeing red or whatever. So you can feel this coming on, even if you have a fast trigger, there's usually signs like increased blood pressure, increased heart rate, just a sense of overall agitation. So one of the ways that you can avoid angry situations is when you are both calm, you can sit down and you can say, you know, do you like this type of interaction? No, no way. Do you like it? No, I don't want to do So you agree. No, neither one of you wants to do this. And, and then you create this verbal cues. This is Real Israel Talk Radio, and I'm Avi ben Mordechai. I'm speaking with international author and marriage consultant, Melissa Orlov. Melissa educates couples, therapists, and counselors, coaching them about how ADHD impacts marriages, while also consulting privately with couples who wish to improve their ADHD-impacted bonds. But, you know, regardless, her advice is keenly relevant to all of us who are married and even not married, ADHD-affected or not affected, because there's always going to be some relational challenges to overcome. So we'll come back and continue with our chat with Melissa Orloff after we take this short break. You're listening to Avi Ben Mordechai and the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-41. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi ben Mordechai. Let's continue speaking with ADHD marriage consultant, Melissa Orlov, as she gives us all some excellent advice and suggestions on how to love and communicate with each other, particularly if your marital relationship happens to be strained in any way. There's a lot of emotionality um, ADHD and it tends to take the form of a quick trigger mm-hmm. emotionally. He'll get agitated about stuff that I wouldn't even think twice about. And uh, so we decided at one point we wanted to stop this. So we set up a verbal cue, which was something along the lines of, hey, you're starting to get agitated. And then his response was supposed to be to stop and calm himself down. He'd start to get agitated and I would say, well, you're starting to get agitated. He'd go, no, I'm not. <laughs> Okay, that did not work. Would you say that a wife kicking her husband under the table, you know, (laughs) doing that kind of thing, you know? Yeah, well, if you're doing that without the previous agreement, you're just being rude, right? Just stop that, bang, 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 (laughs) you know, and your partner is going to be infuriated. So the whole reason that a verbal cue works is because Mm -hmm. you've agreed to it ahead of time and both partners know it. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that the first time that you use it, it's going to work successfully. I mean, we had to change ours around and you still have to Mm -hmm. think about it. You still have to go, huh, that's the verbal cue. Huh, you know, I got to stop what I'm doing right now, which is escalating into this giant rage. And it it takes self-control, which you have to learn. But it's one way to manage a certain kind of anger, which is this flooding into a rage. And then there are lots of other ways to learn to manage anger, even things as basic as exercise, which is a great mood stabilizer, Mm -hmm. both for 
anger, but also for depression and anxiety and other things like that. Okay, let, let me just clue my listeners in a little bit about who we're talking with. We're discussing marital issues, which also involve a, a diagnosis called ADHD, which is actually the acronym for what now? It's the acronym for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. However, you don't have to be hyperactive. And it's actually not about attention deficit. It's actually about attention dysregulation. So it's completely misnamed. I'm speaking with Melissa Orlov. We're discussing issues of non-hyperactivity and hyper-focus and other issues related to marriages and marriages affected by these kinds of debilitating things. I've kind of labeled this based on uh, the Hebrew scriptures at Jeremiah 12.5. If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? I mean, it's really interesting wisdom because this woman, she's had to deal with proverbial horses out there. And I figure, well, if she can do that, she can certainly address all of this other stuff with so many of the other challenges and other weary footmen that maybe you don't have ADHD out there, but you have uh, marriage issues going on. You might want to just quickly just give us some information how people can reach you here at this point, if you'd like. So I have a website called um, ADHDmarriage.com, and it's a very robust site. It has a lot of information uh, for those who have one or two people in the relationship with ADHD. And if you have a kid with ADHD, you might well have undiagnosed adult ADHD in your relationship as well or some tendencies towards it. You know, and you have a lot of interesting advice and interesting thoughts on how to deal with these things, but not so many people know how to deal with that particular aspect. The number in the states is that about 80% of adults who have ADHD do not yet know. 80%? Yeah, about 80% is what they think. And, you know, there are people who suspect that they're different or who think they might have it, but who haven't had a confirming evaluation. So. I, I, I'm telling you, maybe I should uh, retire title this podcast, Hebraic Roots Teaching for the 80% of you out there that have ADHD but don't know it. I think they call it asymptomatic, right? No, no, you definitely have the symptoms. You're de you definitely <laughs> are symptomatic. You just don't know why you can't figure out why your marriage isn't working uh, or why you're having trouble following through on your jobs. It's interesting. People are afraid of this diagnosis, but in fact, it's really good news. You know this yourself, right? You really struggled with it. And then you got this diagnosis. It explained a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And you were able then to take the things that are known about how to manage ADHD and use those because you knew to do it. And before you didn't. So we're dealing with relationships that have conflicts. And I'm asking you, okay, we need conflict resolution. As you are no stranger to this, uh, emotions can often run dangerously high in the midst of a conflict. So now what are you going to do with that? So there's sort of two different questions there, right? So one is about this question of conflict resolution. About 70%, that's seven zero percent of the things that couples are in conflict over are unresolvable. They come out of the fact that they are two different people with back, different backgrounds and different opinions about what should happen and et cetera. So they're not resolvable in the classic sense of we can resolve this and, and everybody's happy, you know, kind of thing. 
Uh, the majority of conflict resolution in a marriage is actually about negotiation. And in negotiation, there is a lot known about how to be a good negotiator. One of the reasons that this issue of parent-child dynamics that I talked about earlier is important is that um, status, your ability to appreciate the person with whom you are negotiating and the sense of goodwill that you have when you know that your opinion is considered important Mm -hmm. is a very important part of negotiating where you're going to end up with the conflict that you're trying to resolve. So a lot of conflict resolution is actually what workaround are you going to create? Sometimes the workaround is this time you get it and next time I get it. Uh, sometimes the workaround is, you know, maybe we need to table this for a while and come back to it in six months. I mean, mm -hmm. there are lots of different ways that couples work through this, mm -hmm. but a lot of it depends upon the goodwill and status and appreciation that you show for your partner. Conflict comes in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. The healthy kind of conflict is that you have a problem, you make a complaint rather than a criticism. You say, I'm struggling with X. You talk about your own issues, not about what you want your partner to change or to do. And you invite your partner to help you figure out how to resolve this. What is your partner's opinion on it? How do you resolve this? And to people who are chronically angry and struggling, that sounds like completely Pollyannish, but it's not. Couples who have the ADHD managed optimally and who have managed to work through the issues I was talking before about conflict intimacy, about non-aggressive speaking and non-defensive listening, they can resolve anything, but you just have to believe your mm -hmm. partner deserves your respect, your partner deserves your kindness. It's a paradigm shift from, I'm really mad at my partner because they're not doing X, Y, Z. With the people that might be listening to this program that are saying, yes, we have all of this kind of thing going on in our marital relationship, I'm assuming you might say to them, look, you have two choices you can do because obviously the talking between the two of you hasn't really brought you very far. You keep getting into these head-butting situations. Okay, you have two choices. Perhaps you could say, go see a marriage counselor or perhaps you could say, go see somebody who can see if you have ADHD. There are classic symptoms of ADHD, right? So not all adults who are struggling have ADHD, far yeah. from it. But mm -hmm. Um, but there are some classic things. When I talk with therapists, many therapists do not recognize ADHD when it walks into their office, believe hmm. it or not. Um, particularly couples therapists who are not used to thinking of ADHD as an as an element. Anyway, when I talk with therapists, if, if somebody says something like, I feel as if I have another child in my household about their partner, that's a indicator that ADHD may very well be present because it's indicating that the partners having trouble following through. If you have a kid who has ADHD, you may very well have ADHD. Chances are better or not that one of the parents has ADHD. If the feels like Groundhog Day where you talk about something and the partner agrees and then doesn't do it and you talk about it again and the partner agrees and doesn't mm -hmm. do it and, you, and it, the same thing pops up over and you know, over and over again yeah and you're just going ah yeah that may well be adhd the primary symptom of adult adhd is distractibility chronic distractibility mm -hmm. so if your partner has trouble focusing on you if you feel lonely because your partner is distracted by a lot of other things mm. If, if your partner's inability to follow through, that all those things would indicate there might be ADHD. Too. And what about uh, things like impulsivity? Oh, yeah. And the impulsivity comes in all sorts of forms. 
addictions, uh, gambling, uh, shopping, uh, blurting things out, um, you know, making impulsive decisions without consulting your spouse, even after you promised you will, because mm-hmm. you can't really manage it. ADHD is actually really interesting. How about this one, Melissa? Trying to uh, goad your partner into getting into an argument, trying to... Uh, <laughs> Trying to create a conflict because, hey, I need a little bit of a dopamine fix in my brain there, you know? That's exactly what's going on. That's the that's the seeking stimulation, right? You can get stimulation by a lot of things, doing things that are dangerous, by goading your partner into arguing with you, by doing video games. You mm. get little squirts of dopamine when you do video games. The fast changeovers and stuff is, affects your brain that way. You can also get stimulation by drinking a lot of coffee. Hmm. or notice. So, I mean, lots of different ways to do that. One of the ways to think about the ADHD brain is that because it has low levels of dopamine and dopamine is part of the reward circuitry of the brain, the ADHD brain seeks reward. It doesn't get enough natural reward. And so it looks for more reward. And in a perverse way, when you get your partner all riled up and they're paying a lot of attention to you, <laughs> that's one form of stimulation. It may not feel that rewarding mm-hmm. to a lot of people, but mm-hmm. it is stimulating. Let's go on and talk a little bit about setting personal boundaries and then learning how to maintain them because we allow people to do things, say things, to cross boundaries, and uh, it creates conflict a lot in relationships. You want to comment on that? So boundaries are really important in any relationship and healthy boundaries. And when people think about boundaries or how to set them, I think they think about setting rules for other people. And my preferred approach for boundaries is actually an internal one, which is aligning your own actions with your own values. So as an example, if you are in a relationship where you are aggressive, or where you are yelling at your partner a lot and disrespectful, and yet you believe that respect is one of the most important parts of a relationship, you are not behaving in a way that aligns with your values. So the first step for me of setting, I want my partner to respect me, but I also want to be true to that value as well. How can I ask my partner to respect me If I'm not respectful of him. Solving the dilemma of how to be her. Ah, okay. How marital needs are met without coming across like you're a nag. It might actually be much higher, though, than 5 to 7%. It's very possible, though. It's many, many marriages on many levels. It really does all the time. And this gets back to this idea of each person having a different perspective. I'm a big believer, after many years of working with, couples, that people need to choose a few issues for them that are critically important to being in their relationship, not try to fix up their partner to be perfect or to Mm. make their life perfect. In my own situation, the things that are critically important to me are the intimate part of my relationship. It's a more emotional, broader intimacy part of that. Mm -hmm. Another is respect and uh, honesty. I'm absolutely unwilling to live without 
And there are things I used to think were important, like having a neat house or um, doing things exactly on time or whatever, that I have completely let go of because in the overall scheme of things, it's much more important to have those strong, vibrant relationships, I think, than it is to know that the stairs are clean or that the kitchen floor doesn't have any sticky stuff on it mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. And whatever else mm-hmm. is going on. Mm-hmm. But everybody makes their own choices there and has to set their own priorities. Okay, so in the relationships, that you're addressing here, the different scenarios that you're talking about. Let me address two people in a relationship. Hey, even a boyfriend, girlfriend, I don't care. It goes in lots of different ways there. Uh, One interrupts the other constantly, and the responder keeps saying, stop talking so much. Give me a chance to respond, and I want to say something. But there's a constant interruption flow. What do you say about that? I've actually talked to a fair number of people about this. Like, you know, you ask people, what's going on? You know, why are you interrupting me? I mean, curiosity, by the way, is a great tool in improving your relationship. But the answers that you'll get are things like, I have something I really want to say, and I'm afraid I will forget it. And another one is, you know, well, I was just really excited about an idea and I wanted to contribute it or something. And then there's just, I'm impatient. Once you get input like that, then you can say, okay, so what's the solution to this problem? Mm. If you have impulsivity, the solution isn't to say, you just need to shut up. A, that's rude. Mm. And B, that's not going to be a motivator. Mm -hmm. So if the person is afraid they're going to forget and you're having an important conversation, one of these sort of sit-down conversations, they can have a pad of paper. Or you can set up a, a verbal cue that's that's the, you know, sort of the, ver- the hand hand raise, hold on, got to insert this before I forget it. And then they insert it. So the other partner hears it. And then you go back to the conversation and then they bring it up later, but the other partner has heard it, right? If it's that the partner is impatient because they're getting lectured, then it's a different issue. The issue there to solve is to stop lecturing and to hand the conversation back and forth more. So you really need to understand what is happening to create the behavior it's not just oh the person's a bad person or they just they Mm. just interrupt Mm. there's Mm. a reason usually my wife and i have learned something very interesting from uh, reading your books and listening to you uh, lecture you call this now a learning conversation uh it's kind of a hybrid of several models that are out there but each person has a role and the idea of the conversation is to de-escalate it and also so to get a better understanding of what's underneath in the assumptions. Part of the reason that conversations go awry is because you assume you know why your partner said something. And in fact, they meant something totally different. And the background for it was in their mind was totally different. And mm-hmm. the assumptions that are unspoken lead the thing astray. So a learning conversation has a speaker and a listener And the speaker talks in three or four sort of sentences about what it is they want to talk about. And typically this is about emotional topics, not about logistics. Mm -hmm. And then the listener not only says, okay, so here's what I heard in their own words, Mm -hmm. not parroting it back, but also what they heard between the lines. And that's where this miscommunication happens. So the partner might say something like, I'm really disappointed that, you know, you didn't take the trash out again. And so I'm struggling with that. And the partner might've heard, you know, well, you think I'm a complete failure. Ah, right. And if they say, well, you know, you're disappointed that I didn't take the trash out and you think I'm a complete failure, the other partner's going to go, whoa, hold on, time out. That's not what I meant. And so you go back and forth until the listener actually truly understands what the speaker was trying to 
trying to say, and then you reverse roles. I don't think people can take that kind of time, though, to address these things. If you think about time, not just as like the 10 minutes you're taking now or the 20 minutes you're taking now, but what you're doing over the next three weeks, if you're coming back over and over and over again to a topic, the cumulative amount of time is probably longer than this that sorts it out so hmm. that you can figure out what the heck is going on and why are you having this repetitive problem. Another scenario here, I feel I have to fix my partner. He or she is out of control. I'll fix it and I'll make it better. The joke with uh, people who counsel couples is that when a couple walks into your office for the first time, they say, we want to do therapy. And what they really mean is, I want you to fix my partner. <laughs> That's always how people start out. So you can't do that. It's easy enough to figure out why. A, your partner's doing something for a reason. And so it's important to understand what those reasons are. And you don't just say you need to change that. And that, you know, that doesn't doesn't change anything. But also, you would be incredibly insulted if somebody came to you and said, there's something wrong with you and you just need to fix it. I mean, no way would you respond positively mm -hmm. to that. So mm -hmm. it's just a really bad strategy. It is, unfortunately, the strategy that most people pick. So emotions and ADHD is actually a really big topic right now. Mm. And it turns out that the science is starting to show that the ADHD brain creates a whole lot of emotion. Ned Hallowell likes to say it's like having a race car brain with bicycle brakes. Oh, no, really? Okay. Uh, and so there's a lot of emotional content and a lot of, you know, fast triggers, and a lot of sensitivity to perceived or real criticism. I mean, if you're trying to correct or educate your partner, your partner is going to hear that as a criticism. Mm -hmm. even if you don't intend it. But actually, usually it is a criticism. The reason you're trying to educate them is because you think they are not doing well enough. So they're not wrong. So anyway, there's a lot of emotion. There are so many ways to manage it. Some of it is by changing the way the brain is actually functioning. But there's also a lot of things you can do to diminish the reason to feel uh, excess emotion. Again, the the status balance or how you're being treated, whether you're being treated kindly and empathetically. And this goes for any relationship. Before you say something, ask yourself, how can I say this or, you know, be kind to my partner? Those kinds of interactions diminish the amount of negative emotionality in the relationship. And if you're in the classic patterns, because ADHD actually is there and you're in that parent-child dynamic, it means probably that the non-ADHD partner is really angry. The presumed ADHD partner says, I don't have ADHD. I'm not the problem in this relationship. I like myself fine. And I did fine before I met you. But the problem is your anger. If you were just nicer, our relationship would be fine, right? That's the sort of classic mutual response, which is, you know, you got all these things you're doing wrong. And so you need to do it this way, which is better, i.e. my way. Um, and that's just the wrong strategy. It always backfires. Mm -hmm. Incidence of ADHD is around 5 to 7% of the adult population. Ah, okay. And of that group, the people who have ADHD, a large number of them don't know they have it. In order to have ADHD, you have to have a fair number of symptoms. And there are some qualifiers about when they showed up in your life and all this stuff. But there's another group, which is what it's called subclinical 
you don't have enough of the symptoms to qualify, or they're not severe enough, some of them, to qualify you for a full diagnosis, but you still have some of those characteristics. And that's about 20% of the population. Mm. So there are a lot of people who show some of these characteristics, but they don't qualify for a full ADHD thing. I've had a wonderful time chatting with you. I really have. I know you got to go. You have some things going on. Uh, would you please uh, just give us some information on where people can reach you, how to get your books uh, your materials, I know your audio books, really some excellent stuff out there. Well, I have the books and the audio books are all available at Amazon and, and other places. Many library systems have my first book, The ADHD Effect on Marriage. Mm -hmm. And the second book is called The Couple's Guide to Thriving with ADHD. And it goes into some of the key topics in more depth. Mm -hmm. So I usually recommend you start with the first one and mm -hmm. then decide if you want the second one. Um, my website is ADHDmarriage.com, and you can always reach me through that. And, and I would say if, if you read the book and you say, wow, this really seems like me, I would recommend my couples seminar. Um, it's, uh, it's very strong. It's helped many couples turn their relationships around. It's designed specifically to bring people from the very sort of start of the process and really getting to understand what's going on all the way through the anger, the chores, the communication issues, rebuilding trust, improving connection, sort of the whole gamut of the changes that they need to make. And in that, of course, people get full access, not full, but they get to ask me any question that they mm -hmm. want and I will answer it. Ooh, bah, bah, oh. I'm so glad that you're out there being able to help the folks uh, that are struggling through with these things. So I want to thank you personally. Well, I'm delighted to talk to you, and I'm also delighted that you're willing to share with people what your story is. Thank you so much, though. I really do appreciate that, though. The justification really for addressing ADHD affected relationships is obvious. However, non-ADHD relationships can also benefit. Melissa Orlov takes traditional marriage counseling to a whole new level as she offers advice and suggestions from her own personal ADHD marital relational responses and re-responses within a marital or relational context. That is, negative responses that can tear marriages apart, stricken by issues of nagging, lack of marital intimacy, harsh words between each other, sudden outbursts of anger. Melissa Orlov's books and consulting services can be found on her website, www.adhdmarriage.com. Again, www.adhdmarriage.com. And once again, thank you for joining us right here on Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai. Come on back the next time and we'll address some more interesting and fascinating topics that can help us all in our walk with Yeshua and the truths of Hebrew Scripture. Hebrew Scripture.